This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Haig. Christopher Fowler is actually a very good friend of this site. Uh, thanks for having us again, Chris. Pleasure. Um, but you've got a new book. Well, you've always got a new book out. But this is this is a different kind of book. This is the book of forgotten authors. Now, I, and cards on the table. I loved this book. Uh, you, you might have written this book uh, for me personally. In fact, if you tell me now that you did, that it was for me, I will completely believe you did. That's exactly what I did, Tim. Just for you. I just kept thinking to myself, what will Tim make of this? <laughs> I know. Now, the, we probably need to talk about what, what kind of book, a book it is. So, um, I'm going to turn that one over to you because it's, it's your book. Fair enough. Um, well, it started with me looking at my own bookshelves and realising that a lot of the authors that I treasured would, if I mentioned them to friends, not be familiar names anymore. I also looked at my parents' books and realised that, for me, many of those were unfamiliar. And then my grandparents' books, many of which were children's books that they had left and passed down to me, which were completely obscure, and thinking, what on earth happened to all of these people? And then I started asking other people if they had somebody that they loved and admired as a, as a child or even recently and other people hadn't heard of and everybody seems to have a forgotten author. So I started compiling them. Did it start off as a, as a uh, newspaper column? Or yeah. Because it, 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 it looks a little as though it did. It's got, it's got the, it draws together all these people it, it, and, and, and you've done like a thousand words about each one. I know, originally, well in the newspaper column for the Independent on Sunday, I, it was only 400 words. It was like a little slug on each person. Mm. So there wasn't really room to expand and, and really dig into the subject. Plus, you realise that when you're um, uh, phoning the uh, uh, Hall of Records in New South Wales, Australia, you realise you're not being paid enough <laughs> to keep, keep that up every week. Plus, I was having to buy the books, and many of the books, and read them before writing the column. There is a fantastic amount of reading in this book. I, I'm, I'm going to slightly call you on it, and, because... I mean, I, I think I read quite a lot, but if, if this book of Forgotten Authors is anything to go by, you, you outdistance me by a factor of four or five. Can you claim to have read as much as it looks like you have? Yeah, because first of all, it was a, um, a lot of the books in this that I feature I'd already read because they were books I've read over my life. So a lot of them, I keep what I call a living library in that I, keep, I only keep the books I go back to. If I, if I know I'm never going to get back to it, I don't really think there's any point in ke keeping it in, in my limited shelf space. So um, there was a, a, a sort of depository, uh, a repository, depository, of books that I had started reading probably at seven up until the present day. So I kind of had a huge pool of books to draw on. So they were already there. But then the more the project went on, the more I discovered other, other writers, and someone would, and several people would say the same name. So I think, oh, well, I have to include her. And then I'd sort of track down that, those books and get, you know, and so the amount of reading was phenomenal. And I'm quite a slow reader as well. So um, it became quite challenging. You've been quite cunning though, because if, I mean, there are 99 authors in, in this book. If every one of them had been completely obscure to us, 
you, in the end, you wouldn't be able to keep going. You'd just be reading about somebody you'd never yeah. heard of. Um, you, you've, you've made a much more judicious selection than that, haven't you? Because there are, there are names here that will, you're sort of, oh, yes, I know that name. I mean, yes, Sven Hassel. I remember him on the, all those lurid paperbacks that I never actually read any of. But, uh, you know, you know the name, but you, you've dug him out and said, well, this is who he was. Well, this is a source of huge argument because um, I started with 450 authors and wrote short bios of all of them. And then by the time we got into the publishing, thinking about the publishing of it as a, as a book, um, my editor and I got into massive arguments as to whether or not somebody was obscure enough. So every now and again, a name like Eric Ambler or... Um, well, Leslie Charteris. Everybody knows that Leslie Charteris wrote The Saint, and yet actually you've got a point out. Never actually read any of them. Exactly. <laughs> no. Virginia Andrews. I've never read a word of Virginia Andrews, even though I remember. In fact, probably in, you know in the, in the charity shops, they're still there on the you know oh, flowers and the what's it in, in the attic or whatever. There's one called My Sweet Audrina, which seems to be in every charitable sh charity shop so along the. It's not that the it's not that they're completely lost, but you're right. They are. <sighs> Forgotten is a sort of catch-all term, isn't it, for yes. neglected or. Passed the over. Some of them are forgotten. Some of some of these people I've never heard. I've never heard of Polly Hope or Philippa Puller. No. But I'll tell you what. Some of these uh, writers I I, I I read about in your book, and I'm going to oh, I really want to. Which is really what what the idea That's is. That's the idea. To, and also, yeah. I didn't include anybody who was absolutely untraceable, because I thought, what's the point of telling somebody? It's like it's like waving a fantastic plate of food in in front of someone and then saying they can't eat it. So I, d I didn't want that to happen. I wanted people to be able to track the book down. Although sometimes you, you do make the point that it'll cost you 500 quid on eBay. <laughs> yeah, they're, if they're you, it depends rare. on how badly you want it. Yeah. Um, and then an awful lot of them are actually there in plain sight, as you say, in the charity shops. Uh, the other test was that I have 20 pretty well-read mates who, and I, who if, if there was an author, I couldn't decide whether or not he or she would, should go in or come out. I would say... To this 20 have you heard of this author and the second part was have you read this author and if i got more than 10 no's then it definitely went on the to be considered pile mm -hmm. so there was a test going on through this and then a couple of them came well quite a few of them came back to life during the writing of the book so for example hans falada who i had only vaguely heard of for alone in berlin suddenly a film was announced with emma thompson in the lead and in the time of writing the book the the, the film came out the film bombed but uh, Hans Falada's book suddenly reappeared on bookshelves which is great I mean it, it sort of helps the argument because and then publishers would actually get in touch with me and say I hear you're interested in so-and-so um, what if we republished her you know and, then and your answer would always be yes yes yeah, yeah, do it. yeah because they, they need to be there there's a lot of really good stuff yeah. that's just lost out of uh, for one reason or another. I mean, do any of these authors deserve to be forgotten? Yeah, no, there's a section in the book called Justly Forgotten, because um, there are some, like Vivian Holland, Oscar Wilde's son, yeah. who writes the worst doggerel poetry you've ever read in your life. And yet we love William McGonagall. We, well, yeah, cause, cause he's, yeah, because he's bad enough to be good. But Vivian Hollywood is just uh, Vivian Holland is just lousy, 
And the interesting thing is, you can still pick up the complete works of Vivian Holland in charity shops for a fiver, and nobody does. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how bad they are. <laughs> so yeah, no, there are, there are ones. And also, there's an awful lot of poor choices made by students over the years as to what they're going to go backpacking with in their gap year. So Richard Vack, who wrote Jonathan Livingston oh, Seagull. I hated Jonathan Livingston Seagull with a passion. It was one of those um, sort of faux uh, spiritual books, like, yeah. like Khalil Gibran's The Prophet, and, yes. and the, uh, the Little Prince, the Antoine mm. de Saint-Exupéry. Uh, and and you, you cringed reading them because, because, they were, because they were faking it. Totally faking. They, and, they, yeah. And he turned out to be um, a, a, a sort of bit of a fantasist because he also told people he was re related to Johann Sebastian Bach <laughs> and lots of other um, toss. But, the sixties um, threw up a lot of rubbish. Though. The sixties did, and oh, there was a film version of Jonathan Livingston Seagull with a score by perfectly cast Neil Diamond. <laughs> Just awful, and yeah, awful lot of sixties. Uh, one of the great sixties ones in the book is T. Lobsang Rampa. We were going to do that. I'm going to ask you to tell me about this because I, I, I had never heard of him. He was sort of the Carlos Castaneda of his day, wasn't he? He was, um, oh, he was, he was a, a Buddhist monk who wrote this spiritual book. The except Third Eye. That, the Third yeah. Eye. Except that. Except that T. Lobsang Rampa turned out to be a plumber from Devon. Um, called Cyril. Called Cyril Hoskins. Hodgkins, I think. Cyril Hoskins. Um, and he had made made it all up. He made made up eighteen volumes. Of this. But he was outed after the first one. No, but didn't stop people from buying them. They carried on buying them, and there's still a society, a T. Lobsang Rampa Society. He fled to Canada when when the pressure got too much on him, because he thought that by being discovered to be a plumber in Devon, he that his career was over. But it was just really taking off. So he fled to Canada, where there is still a huge fan base for him. Um, it, uh, the last few volumes have him meeting aliens and floating about on giant kites and saying that his books were dictated to him by his cat, Mrs. Fifi Greywhiskers. Could be a religion. I mean, the, uh, you know, <laughs> if Scientology can make it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or Mormonism. Let's set, set one on Cyril. Absolutely. Yeah. The way... Are you, are you going to start this book? Anybody is going to start this book is by opening it up and having a look at who the authors are, just to reassure themselves, I suppose, that they, that they know some of them. And, and of course, I did that, you know, oh, yeah, Carol Brahms, I've read her. Oh, actually, when I think I've only read one of hers. And Marjorie Allingham, yeah, oh, sure, yeah, Terry, oh, I've only read one Tiger of hers as well. I've read The Tiger in the Smoke, yeah. which actually doesn't work. It's, it's a very curious, because it's a Cambian book. But he's not needed. He's, he's, he, he's barely he's needed in most in most of her books. He's so right? ethereal as to as to really not exist as a person in nearly all of the books, and uh, they're they're really just well. And there's a very good quote today by um, Philip Pullman talking about writing tips, and he said, uh, "Structure is less important than tone and atmosphere." And I thought that's really interesting because a lot of the people who have made it through into the uh, in, uh, have been remembered and not forgotten did it because they're tonally right. So you don't necessarily remember the plots of all the Sherlock Holmes stories, but you remember the tone, you remember the atmosphere, the you know the the, the Victorian, you know the foggy London, misty atmosphere of London. What you don't really remember is who who 
who sent the snake down the bell pool in the... I don't remember. I remember it was a snake, but who it was... But then I never know who done it. <laughs> I, I, Nobody I, cares who done it, really. No. And that's then. the interesting thing. They care about the, the setup and the detective and the characters mm. and the spirit of the thing and uh, energy and atmosphere. Do they care who done it? Well, often I don't even know who done it until I'm in the second half of writing a book myself. <laughs> so, you know. A lot of the uh, books in, in the book of forgotten authors, a lot of the authors were thriller and, and mystery writers. Um, is, is that just because that's your, your, um, your no. preference? or uh... No, it's, uh, the idea was to cover popular writers, uh, mainly. I mean, there's some very experimental writers in there as well. But it was to cover the popular writers who were printed in millions and made it into paperback and turned up in shelves um, in homes across the country and possibly yeah, some of these people uh, sold in by the million and then yeah. dropped out yeah. I forget who it, well one of your uh, writers became a butler um, after having million seller yeah books. that was Patrick Dennis who wrote um, we well, wrote several hit books including Auntie Maine which was filmed twice and something called Little Me which was turned into a show for Sid Caesar um, and then he became the butler to the CEO of McDonald's. There are a lot of lurid real lives in, in the Book of Forgotten yeah. Authors. Yeah. And, and sometimes you'll just do a paragraph of, of saying, you know, so-and-so uh, was, was, uh, went off to a Buddhist monastery and, and then uh, robbed a train and became a, a, a counsellor in, in Samarkand and then married a, a painter in Camden. Bought a as plantation in Ecuador. Yes, as you do. <laughs> as you always, do. always. As you do. Wouldn't you, you know, use your, your, your profits from your book to buy an estate in Monte Carlo? back in the 1920s when it was cheap um, there's a guy called Thomas Tryon who's in the book who was handsome successful charming delightful uh, an actor starring opposite Marilyn Monroe in the lead when she died so he became a writer instead and that's uh, that's why he wrote because he his job with Marilyn Monroe fell through and he was as good a writer as he was an actor. She was selfish that way. She was very, very selfish of her, yeah. Otto Preminger was directing and hated him and so treated him very badly. So he said, ah, oh, sod this, I've had enough with, you know, with the acting, I'm going to write a book. And everybody thought, hmm. And the book was a bestseller and it became a movie. So some people just, uh, some people do it that way. And then the, a lot of people who vanish, um, it's the opposite. They, they go mad, they become alcoholic. They became drug addicted. They were became broke, and were living in the streets. Some made so much money they just vanished off to the south of France. Um, so some some of the endings. After, sometimes they get censored, and that kills their book. I mean, there's the story of one woman in, in there who was who was a very genteel lady, a good Catholic, who wrote a book uh, which became. Was, was billed as sensational in the 40s. You read it now and it's incredibly mild, but it was banned by the Catholic Legion of Decency, which was mortifying to her and she never wrote again. So you could lose books that way. There's so many weird ways that you didn't think that someone's career would end. So you, you think you write a book and it will live forever. Well, sometimes it, it doesn't. And quite a lot of the time it doesn't. Yeah, I, yeah. I love the idea of going back to a time there when you could write a bestseller and become rich. Because outside of the J.K. Rowling brigade, yeah. writers on the whole scrape a living these days. Well, the average national wage for a writer, 
Do you know what that is? Annual no, salary? No, no. Go on. Have a guess. 12,000? Seven. Is it? 7,000. Luxury. Yeah. <laughs> we lived in shoebox in the middle of the road. Yeah, it's, it's very low. Another corner of the Aladdin's Cave of, of this book is um, sometimes a writer that I will never have heard of, but you'll point me at something where I go, oh, it was that uh, uh, Lu uh, Lucille Fletcher uh, wrote Sorry, Wrong Number. Mm. I saw that film when I was a teenager, and I've never seen it since, and yet I remember it. And she wrote it as a book, and she wrote it as a play, I think, and, and she, wrote, she wrote the movie. Um, and then, you know, it, it, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to know, to meet, actually, as it were, the woman who wrote Sorry, Wrong Number. I just don't remember that, that last bit where it's just the bottom half of the guy's face talking into the, into the uh, telephone. Sorry, wrong number. And it was so chilly. It stayed with me for, well, it's, it's months now since I was a teenager and watching something. <laughs> but, you know, th th that kind of thing is, is one of the reasons for, for wanting the book. Um, and, and there are so many, like, half a dozen of the writers wound up working for Hitchcock. Hitchcock stalks these pages like a, like a... Hitchcock was a saviour for many female suspense writers who were pretty much... Um, I mean, after the war, they had been independent during the war and then suddenly they were forced back into the kitchen. And a lot of them started writing about um, housewives being treated badly by their husbands or people around them who start fighting back. And I think it was a way of taking... Uh, not revenge, but taking control of their situation again but they weren't necessarily well well read or very well discovered until hitchcock came along and he had his tv series his you know a weekly hour of suspense and he would hire them and suddenly they would he would take their short stories or their novels and then make them into films and um a lot of them thanks to him have come back now once again we're going through a big re revival of female domestic suspense. Margaret Miller, all of her astonishing books um, are being republished monthly at the moment. And uh, they read like movies. Uh, they're incredibly crisp, tight, noir thrillers. But one of the things that is really noticeable about all the women writers of that period is how much the men talk down to them. It's quite so shocking. The men go, you're not well, dear. You're, 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 you're living on your nerves. Take some of these pills the doctor gave me for you and take to your bed for a while. Otherwise, we'll have to put you away in a madhouse. And this comes up again and again, the threat of the madhouse. Yeah, there's a story there, though, if you want to. Actually, that's another. Finally, we'll just say, do you not worry that um, you know, a, a would-be an aspiring writer might, might read this book and just steal all the plots that you um, that you adumbrate that you you praise <laughs> well i think i mean we all we all uh, build on the plots of, of previous writers and i think a direct steal would be a bit noticeable but i i do think a lot of them well you say that another hitchcock connection is frank baker that's wrote an interesting a book a story called the birds which is much more similar to the Hitchcock film than the Daphne du Maurier one. It's actually a novel. I, I'm, I'm a, just mining your book here. This is, this is your information, not mine, that I'm telling you. But yeah, it's a, it's a novel, is it? It's a novel, and his version, The Birds, is a novel. And Daphne du Maurier's is a very short story. Um, and I suppose the one image I take away from the du Maurier story is the birds on the roof of a Cornish type, or oh, a coastal house. 
But in the much bigger Frank Baker um, book, the birds attack everyone in Trafalgar Square. There's an astonishing scene where people fleeing across Trafalgar Square. And the interesting thing is that De Maurier and Baker knew each other. They lived nearby. Uh, Baker was a church organist on a stipend of, of, of like a pound a week, I think. And uh, De Maurier was successful. And I th- what I think happened, reading between the lines, I think Hitchcock read, the, read both. And then he told somebody to buy the option. And I think, I think possibly the wrong one was bought. Because Baker wrote to De Maurier and said about the similarity in the books. And she wrote back and she was, oh, oh dear, I didn't realise, sort of thing. And there was very nearly a court case and then it never happened. So, but weirdly, the film feels more like Baker than De Maurier. Chris, I love the book. There's, there are all sorts of stuff like that in it. Um, and, um, well, <laughs> I, I, I imagine you're expecting it to sell scats for Christmas. Everybody's a Christmas stocking. I'm prepared to go and personally tie a bow, bow ribbon on each one. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Fowler, thanks very much. Thanks, Tim. The uh, Book of Forgotten Authors by Christopher Fowler is published by Quercus and it's £14.99. That was The Books Podcast with Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is produced by Green Shoot. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.